Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning, church in Medina. Uh, good morning to everybody, or good night, or good evening, or whatever the time may be for those of you who may be viewing this on the webcast. Uh, a, a warm hello to all of you out there, and it's good to be here. Boy, is it good to be here. I know some of you guys were sweating it, weren't you? Some of you guys who speak, you were looking at each other and you were wondering, if Tony doesn't make it, who's going to give the message today? That happens in Columbus all the time. See, a couple years ago, I make light of that because um, a couple years ago, I did, I think it was either five or six impromptu sermons because people didn't call, didn't show. I had no idea they weren't going to be there. Next thing you know... It's go time, and somebody's got to give the message, so I know what it's like to sit there and look at your watch and go, oh, he better get here. He's going, he better get here or else. But it is good to be here, uh, nonetheless. Um, I know the ministry, uh, as the Bible tells us, are supposed to be an example, so I hate being late. I think this is the third time in my almost 11 years of ministry that I've been late showing up somewhere, so... Please accept my apology. It's not a very good example. Uh, I can't help construction, though. Uh, construction caught us up in Columbus. Like in the first five minutes we got out, they had our outer, outer belt shut down for about a mile. And then, of course, everybody tries to get off on these little feeder detours, and you're not going anywhere. So right when I was getting ready to get on Facebook, and I realized my phone went to LTE because I wasn't on Wi-Fi, I was taking 10 minutes to upload Facebook to tell everybody I was going to be here, Karen called, so... Thank you, Karen. I'm a little bit disheveled. I'm a little bit, uh, you know, as you get like this in traffic, I'm still a little bit hyper from that, but uh, it is good to be here. And I um, want to thank everybody for the example that we showed uh, this morning at the beginning of services for that intercessory prayer. Uh, we're supposed to pray for one another, aren't we? The scriptures tell us that. And I learned a long time ago, uh, not as a minister, but as a Christian, that there is no time in our lives, in which we will be more Christ-like than when we get on our knees or we come together as a congregation and we, with a combined effort, bow our heads and do an intercessory prayer on behalf of another human being. We are most Christ-like because that's when we are most, most selfless. That's when we're less careful about ourselves and more caring of others. It is the perfect example of agape love, to care for one another. And I know some of us in times past, maybe not here, but in other parts of, of the Church of God culture said, we don't want to do intercessory prayers. The Catholics do that. Intercessory prayer belongs to the Catholics? When did that happen? No, 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 no. We are supposed to pray for one another. And it just reminds me when we hear these prayer requests, there are a lot of external forces that come our way, that challenge our faith, that test what we're made of, aren't there? There's a lot of things to test our character, to test our mettle. And I've always found comfort in the fact that we being human beings, when we find ourselves in times of uncertainty, trepidations, and anxieties, if I'm not alone here, hopefully I'm not the only one, but do we not find ourselves sometimes in brief, but nonetheless faithless times sometimes? Our faith isn't as strong during certain situations in our life. Sometimes our faith falters. Anybody ever been there before? I've been there more than I care to admit. But you know, there are some scriptures and this isn't my sermon today, but I think it's relevant to those announcements that we heard today. There are people out there, brethren of ours, extended relatives of brethren of ours, who grow weary, have trepidation, anxieties because of illness or other circumstances they might find themselves in. And sometimes we find our faith isn't as strong as it ought to be. I mean, day in and day out, we're beleaguered and bombarded by the external influences of this world that somehow seem to rob us of our crown and our faith. But there are some sayings of the Apostle Paul that I've oftentimes found a great deal of comfort in. He calls them the faithful sayings. You ever read those? The Apostle Paul says time after time, several times in the Scriptures, he says, and I'm paraphrasing, this is a faithful saying and noteworthy. 
And there's one passage, and I can't remember. I think it might be in Timothy, but my memory's not as good as it used to be. He says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. Isn't it amazing to know what we know and to understand what we understand and to have the reality in, not only in our, our minds and, and conceptualization, but in the reality that we have a high priest that sits at the right hand of our Father and he, you have his attention. He knows you by name. He knows your character. The very hairs on your head are numbered. I make his job easy, I always say. (laughs) But he knows you. He knows what you need before you ask him. You know what that tells me about prayer? That if he knows what we need before we ask him, God desires our communication. He desires a relationship. And just like the Apostle Paul said, no matter what it is that we're faced with, I want to encourage you before I get into my main message today that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. No matter what we're faced with. Don't ever forget that. Because this world and the ruler of this world has a way of edging himself in and the weak cracks that we have in our character and our faith and tries to drive that wedge right between us and our Creator. And if we give Him an inch, He'll take a mile. If I can use some cliches. But be of good cheer, as Jesus said, because He has overcome the world. And we do not have a high priest that can't sympathize with us. Because all high priests taken among men are taken from among men because they have suffered in the exact same way that we have. That's what makes a high priest such a great one. And that's why we're in this process now of suffering the ups and downs of life because when it comes time for us to be called to serve the nations, you're going to be able to go out to the world, to all the nations, and you know what you're going to be able to do? You're going to be able to help those in the world because you're going to be able to sympathize with them because you lived it. Don't ever devalue the lessons of the trials of our faith. Because how will you ever know that your faith is valid? How will we ever have our faith validated if it's not challenged? Boy, this life is an exercise. It's an exercise of faith, and this this life is the walk of the faithful. So be encouraged today, no matter what, what we find ourselves faced with, there is nothing that is insurmountable to our Creator. So as long as we stick with Him, we're going to be okay, no matter what the circuit. So keep praying for one another. Pray for, pray for each other. Pray for the church at large and pray for the ministry. Continue to pray, pray for the ministry. We need your prayers. I find myself nowadays, I'm living deadline to deadline. I'm not nearly as prepared as what I used to be. Because the more that, that, that you do, the more is expected. <laughs> Uh, I've started my own business, and i got a backlog right now. People call me, where are you at? you got to get out here. we got things you need done. Uh, two TV programs, a YouTube, a funeral on Saturday. I don't know how I'm going to manage it, but I know it's going to get managed. Let's just pray for one another. Brethren, I do have a, a main message after my introduction here that was not completely related to what I'm talking about today. But if you would please, turn over with me with the book of Galatians chapter 3, because there is a scripture here I'd like to turn to that's going to serve as a catalyst that will lead us into the body of the main message, the predicate, if you will. Just the, uh, let's just go to verse 26 and we'll read down through uh, verse 29. Now verse 26 It says, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Genealogy, brethren, in regards to salvation, other than the fact it validates the promises given Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that ultimately lead to the Savior coming out of the, the, the tribe of, of the Jews, means nothing for our salvation. It has nothing to do with our calling. It has nothing to do with superiority or inferiority. It has nothing to do with that. But there are people out there, theologians, Christianity in general, some in the Jewish realm, that would like to place a wedge between Christians or Jews and Gentiles. In other words, we're going to talk about something today called this great old story, wink, wink, called duplicity of the gospel. Now, when I read this, this couple short verses here, I'm reminded that there is no distinction among God with race, genealogy, with our calling. We can even add gender into that if we want to read, you know, read more into that. So my question is, in regards to our calling, whether we be Jewish background or whether we be of Goyim or Gentile background, are there differences in expectations between what Christ has in mind for us, Christians, slash Jews? In other words, are there two separate sets of criteria? Are the Jews required to keep the law? Why non-Jews non are required to not keep the law? Because believe it or not, there's a reason why I'm bringing this topic up, because there is a trend within Christianity nowadays, I'm going to get to here in just a few minutes, to reinforce this idea that there are two sets of expectations that is an attempt to predate the New Testament Christians' belief of duplicity of the gospel, which means there's one set of standards for the Jews, there's one set of standards for the Gentiles, that allegedly goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. All the way back to the book of Genesis, which sets a separate standard. In other words, you are not required, this is the saying, this is what they teach, if you are not of Jewish lineage and Jewish faith, you are not required, and as a matter of fact, to take it further, you are sinning if you keep all of God's Ten Commandments. This is something that's going on in a pandemic way among Christianity. And oftentimes I will get emails from people or I even get, who, who here is on Facebook? But on Facebook? So you guys have this thing called Messenger. I will get this thing, people will text me. I just use the word texting on Messenger saying, Tony, what is going on? All these people are bothering me that I have to pronounce Jesus' name correctly or I have to believe in these things called the Noahide Laws. Anybody ever heard of the Noahide Laws? It's the next heresy coming to a church near you. And it's a big movement. It's gaining momentum. And it's even impacting some people in the church of God. But let's go on down through here because I have a couple different titles I initially announced this as red-letter theology. Red-letter theology. Now, as I get into this, I want you to understand something about the letters in red. Now, when I say that, I, you obviously know what I'm talking about. What are the letters, who are the letters in red attributed to? Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, right? We have the letters in red in a lot of our Bibles that distinctively set him apart as the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So many of his words are twisted. So many of his words are misused, ironically enough, in some realms, to even justify sin. I want to start out today with an exercise. I'm going to need your participation in this, so don't be afraid to shout out. But I want to ask you a question. If I were to ask you this question, I'm going to ask, ask you, and it's okay to speak up. The question is, during the life of Christ, when he started his ministry from the beginning of his ministry until his crucifixion and consequent resurrection and ascension to heaven, what was the topic that Jesus spoke about the most? Kingdom. 
Kingdom of Heaven, Salvation. What's back? What do you got back here? Any specifics? The good news. That's what he spoke about the most. That okay. That is a a, a broad umbrella to cover several different topics that people believe that Jesus Christ talked about the most. Okay, when people are asked this question, here's the answers that they come up with. Okay, this is, and they're not alone because this is what I thought too for so many years. Okay, when people think or when they are asked the question, what did Jesus preach about the most? Okay, the kingdom of God was the first message and it was a continual message that he preached during his whole life, during his whole ministry. But there are some things underneath that umbrella that people think that he gave or lent uh, vital importance to as the most important component to the gospel message that I found out by a surprise that weren't true. How about love? Would that be a reasonable answer? I think it would be a reasonable answer, right? He talked about love quite a bit. I would agree with that. I would agree with that. Um, Underneath the topic of love, how about charity? He did talk about charity quite a bit. Uh, he, it's even said that as he was preaching that he looked upon the multitudes and they were hungry and he had compassion on them and thus we have some of the miracles that we see uh, with the multiplication of the fish and bread and so on. So charity, compassion, these kind of things were inclusive of the ministry of Jesus Christ. I'll, I'll give that to you. How about um, mercy and faith? He talked about mercy quite a bit. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 23, he chided the Pharisees, remember, because he said, you should have done all these other things like tithing and things and not left mercy and faith and these things undone. Remember that? So he did talk about those things. How about acceptance? Did he talk about acceptance quite a bit? We have a Savior who was not afraid to sit down with, eat with, talk with, spend time with sinners. Tax collectors, Jewish leaders, Pharisees. He even at one time, how dare he speak to a Samaritan woman? Let alone speak to a Gentile. So in some ways he did talk about tolerance. But not the same kind of tolerance that we're taught that we should have today. You see, tolerance doesn't always equate to acceptance of behaviors, ideologies, that are contradictions to the Bible. We are told that if we are not accepting, that we are not loving. Have you heard that before? A lot of these things that people talk about on TV. Did he talk about... um, Unity in the church. Well, I think that's included in, you know, the things that we talked about. But oftentimes when people talk about unity, they talk about, they want to talk about compromise. To compromise the integrity of doctrine, okay? Did he talk about life experience? In other words, Christian living. Was that his main message, Christian living? We have whole ministries out there dedicated to this thing called Christian living, you know, these health and prosperity ministries. If you just sow a seed of faith, that God's going to return a hundredfold to you. Now, these are answers to the question that were given in response in a theology class. You might be surprised to know as I was, that not one of these topics or one of these answers that were brought up by these theological students were anything close to what Jesus maintained the focus on when he preached. I was shocked by that. I'm looking at these things, and they sound good. Love, acceptance, unity, life experiences, how to live the the, the Christian, the Christian walk. I get all that. I understand that. So when I heard that that wasn't the answer, and that the, the conclusion that I'm going to show you that this, this um, theological uh, professor came up with actually has some uh, laboratory and or research evidence to back up what, what I'm getting ready to say here. Anybody ever heard of a pastor out in Texas? Um, he is a, a mainstream 
a theologian, you know, Sunday, Christmas, Easter, these kind of things like that. But he wrote a thesis or a lesson called Lesson Number 107. Anybody ever heard of the name Stephen J. Cole? Stephen J. Cole. Well, according to the things that I read, okay, and we believe everything we hear on the internet, right? Or we read on, we believe everything we read, okay? Don't believe anything you read on Facebook, especially when it's talking about the news. It's all fake news. Most of it is, anyways. You don't know what the truth is anymore. But according to this Stephen J. Cole pastor, he was reading some articles. I think he was even reading a book. And he was doing some research on some uh, two very well-known, uh, noteworthy pastors in the Sunday-keeping tradition. Anybody ever heard of uh, Jerry Falwell and Billy Graham? Those are two very big names in traditional Christianity. You know, I'm not going to question their, um, their motives, but some of the conclusions that they've come across as far as what days we should keep and so on and so forth, um, I know we would take issue with, but to their credit, to their credit, there were two most noteworthy, out there, out front, visible ministers uh, within the, the, the Sunday-keeping uh, culture that had admitted something. Jerry Falwell, I think it was. I don't remember if it was Jerry Falwell or Billy Graham that said this. They said that I am absolutely wrong and responsible for being lazy and not recognizing the real topic that Jesus Christ talked about. And he goes on down here. They said they propelled this theology and also admitted that the approach, their approach to the letters in red written in the Bible... The, the bias that they read into them obviously affected their theological teachings. And so Stephen J. Cole decided to test their theories on whether or not that he was right about the main topic that they talked about. And so what he did was he went to his students, his theological students, and he said, when you think of the ministry of Christ, what do you think of? What is the topic? The same question I asked you. What did he think of or what did he preach about? What did he talk about the most? I even did this on Facebook and got very similar answers just to my friends out there. Here's the answers they came up with. Love, acceptance or tolerance, unity, and life experience. When I did this experiment on Facebook, here's what came back to me. Forgiveness, acceptance, it's a love story, Finances and healing. That's what people came back with. That's the main thing that they thought Jesus Christ talked about. So what he did was, Stephen J. Cole, was he issued, issued a challenge to his theological students. He broke them up in groups, little uh, work groups, uh, focus groups. I think they call them focus groups. Now you can't call them work groups. They're focus groups. He broke them out into groups. And said, over the next several weeks, what I want you to do is I want you to go through the gospel accounts, and I want you to go through all the letters in red, and I want you to tell me what his main message was. What did he continually repeat time after time after time after time? Because there are some people out there that would have you believe, I've heard this firsthand, that all you need to do for salvation is simply go through the gospel accounts, copy each and every letter in red in the scriptures, and in them are all the needs for salvation. The problem is, they oftentimes turn to arguments from silence to justify their sin. I've even heard people say that Jesus never spoke a word about homosexuality in the red letter, so why do we even bother with it? See, these arguments from silence, that's, that's how they happen. So we broke them up into groups. They came back in a few weeks. And turn with me to Matthew chapter 7 because I want to give you the answer. Matthew chapter 7. And actually, it's found right here in, in verse 15. You want to know the answer? You want to know who talked about the most? It's right here. Beware of false prophets. What did Jesus talk about the most? Beware of false prophets. There's a lot of them out there. There really are. Who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. There's a lot of false teachers out there. There's a lot of false prophets out there. 
There's a lot of people out there that would have you believe that we are sinning because we're keeping the law of God. Anybody ever heard of these things called the Noahide laws? You heard of the Noahide laws? Yeah. Oh, let me, let me get more righteous. The Noahide laws. I had someone correct me one time because I didn't pronounce it or write it correctly in Hebrew. So for my Hebrew-speaking brethren, which probably aren't many, Noahide laws. There's something that happens to God's people on Facebook every Friday night at sundown. They suddenly turn Jewish. Anybody on Facebook, you know what I'm talking about. All of a sudden, somebody who lives in Midwest starts saying, Shabbat Shalom. Placing pictures of the menorah on Facebook. Now here we are in this culture of the church of God, in which we've done our best to maintain the association and connection to Jesus Christ. And suddenly we want to turn Hebrew on Friday nights. And we'll take it further, we have some people out there, not going to point out groups or, 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 or names, that would have us believe that if we do not pronounce Yahshua correctly, or we don't use the Hebrew correctly, or we spell God out and dare we use the O, we don't use the G underscore lowercase d, that we are sinning and guilty of blaspheme because we're dare mispronouncing God's name. I had a lady I had to help online because she wrote a post that said, I need somebody's help. I don't know how to correctly write or pronounce Jesus' name. We have all these wounded, bleeding, hurt sheep that have been out there in the world for so long that are absolutely beleaguered by sin, struggling in this life, and we have some people coming in through the back door telling them, first thing you've got to start with, you've got to learn how to pronounce Jesus' name correctly or you can't come to church. Struggling with sin, and the first thing that people that are on the fringe of the Church of God movement, I understand that, it's not, it's not the main fringe, so to speak, but to hound somebody and to place a stumbling block in front of them and set a standard that Jesus Christ, the Messiah himself, didn't have for himself. You remember the words of Christ? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Is that Hebrew? No, it's Syrian Aramaic. So if Jesus was pronouncing the Father's name in Syrian Aramaic, those people might even come to the conclusion that he was sinning because he didn't pronounce it correctly or in a holy language. Is there a language that's holy in the Scriptures? Is there such thing as a holy language? Let's take it a step further. Back in the book of Genesis, during the Tower of Babel, when they came together and they were going to set up a nation for themselves, they started to build this tower, they're going to reach it up to the high heaven, uh, you don't read anything about Nimrod or anybody including God in the picture with that civilization. That was the problem. What did God do? Do you remember what God did? Anybody want to shout it out? What did God do? He confounded the language. So, question. If God is the author of the other languages that he told them to speak or the dialect that he gave them, is he guilty of sin? Because he's the one that did it. Pictures of the menorah. Anybody ever done a study on what the menorah represents? You know the middle candlestick? We spend a great deal of time talking against Christmas and Easter and Halloween, and yet we have people in God's culture, of all things, starting to endorse and to keep Hanukkah? You know what that middle candle represents? The Queen of Heaven. The Queen of Heaven. A lot of things that we do, brethren, or some of the subcultures of this Church of God movement that are coming in and saying that we need, to pre we need to speak Hebrew, we need to keep Hanukkah, 
uh, we need to do all these other things, are really doing a lot to thwart people's growth in the walk with Christ. Now, we already know that there's been some false teachers out there that preach that the Sabbath's been done away. You've never heard that before, have you? Or the Sabbath's been changed? Um, you've never heard it said before that uh, we're not required to keep the Ten Commandments. Never heard that before, have you? That there is liberty in Christ. Remember that? But then they forget to follow up the Galatians that Paul says, you know, do not only just don't use your liberty as a cloak to fall back into sin. It amazes me how traditional Christianity, this next fringe group that I'm going to talk about here, can even maintain any semblance of any kind of a definition of what sin is. Without the law, without God's decalogue, without his Ten Commandments, how are we going to define sin? Because sin has a few definitions that fall underneath the umbrella of that which is not of righteousness is sin. So we have the main point is 1 John 3, 4. What is sin, brethren? You're, you're an educated audience. What is sin? Sin or harmatea, means that you're supposed to be aiming for the bullseye. That you're supposed to be aiming for the mark. And if you're not aiming for the mark, okay, thank you, Angie, 30 minutes. It says, um, sin is basically the missing of the mark or the transgression of the law. So it amazes me how some people can even maintain any kind of a notion of what sin is when they say that the law has been done away with. There is another movement that's coming around. Now look, I have to, before I read anything from this, I have to uh, give you a little bit of a caveat here. Because anytime you're dealing with new issues or, or fringe movements that are starting to impact people, that are starting to have an impact on them, it's really hard, it's really hard sometimes to separate fact from fiction, because what I'm going to talk about today has a lot of conspiratorial, conspiratorial um, what do they call this, the one world order movement. And you got to be careful because a lot of the things that you read may not be true, but be that as it may, there is something that is a little bit different take on the traditional uh, Sunday keeping community regarding this duplicity of the law in which Jews are required to keep the law, but the Gentiles are not. It's called the Noahide Laws. Now, the Noahide Laws are based on Talmudic tradition. Mishnaic tradition, the Talmud being that which uh, the oral law was codified and actually put into uh, a code, a readable code here. And what they say is that God gave uh, Adam just a few laws. Matter of fact, one, two, three, four, five, six, six laws or seven laws, rather, of which the Gentile community or the non-Jewish community are only required to observe. And that was ratified at the Noatian Covenant, hence the term Noahide laws. These seven laws that were allegedly given to Noah that are only binding upon the children of Noah, the sons of Noah, in other words, Goyim or Gentiles, those who are not of the Jewish faith, they are not required to keep the Sabbath day. They are not required to keep the holy days. That there is a bifurcation and a distinction that is drawn between Jew and Gentiles. And you're going to see how heinous this modern day heresy has become. Because on the surface it sounds okay. It sounds pretty good. Here's what, let's, that's just, um, because there's some contradiction uh, amongst uh, rabbinical scholars of whether or not this actually began in the book of Genesis uh, early on, you know, with, with Adam and Eve or later on. So let's over, go over to Genesis chapter 9. I'll, I'll give you these laws that are, that are being promoted. In Genesis chapter 9, Of course, after the ark settled, in verse 1 of chapter 9. Well, let me, let me back up. Let me give you the laws first. Let me give you the laws. Here's the laws. 
Because I see a better way of doing this. Prohibition of idolatry. Prohibition of murder. Prohibition of theft. Prohibition of sexual promiscuity. Prohibition of blasphemy. Prohibition of cruelty to animals. And a requirement to have just laws, you shall set up an effective judiciary to enforce the preceding six laws fairly. Sounds pretty good, right? On the surface, that sounds pretty good. Who would not want laws against idolatry, murder, theft, sexual, sexual promiscuity, blasphemy, cruelty to animals, and just, a just judiciary system? Who doesn't want that? Right? But when you go down through Genesis chapter 9, and you actually read what, what some of this means here... Um, he says, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the field and every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth and all the fish on the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. But you shall not eat flesh within its life, that is its blood, Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast I will require it. And from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful, multiply, bring forth abundantly the earth and multiply it. Then God spoke to Noah and his sons with him saying, and as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants for you, after you, with every living creature that is with you, the birds and the cattle, every beast of the earth and every beast of the field and all that. He says, I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant. I will be, make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for a perpetual generation, I will set my rainbow in the cloud. And today we still see that, that symbol, that rainbow in the cloud. Isn't it amazing how such a wonderful covenant between God and Noah and the beast of the field has become so perverted? It used to be that the symbol of the rainbow represented God's throne. Now it seems to be that anytime you, you, anybody displays the flag, what do you think of when you see a rainbow being displayed? On the bumper of somebody's car, on the flags, on the, I drive by these houses all the time, they got this rainbow flag. I go, uh-huh, yeah, yeah. I know what that means. But my mind gravitates toward that. Maybe what they're really saying is, hey, I remember this covenant, that I won't flood the earth anymore. But anyways, my point is, is that some of these, these adherents to Noahide law will say that this law was given before Israel was founded. Okay, it was. And that this is a law, these seven laws are binding to Gentiles only, and that there's a separate set of standards for the Jews. Because if this is the only covenant that God gave to the Gentile nations, right, in, in uh, Exodus chapter 12, uh, I can't remember the verse for offhand, but doesn't it say that there shall be one law for the native and the stranger of Israel. One law. One law. Yeah, people say this Noadic covenant is for the Gentiles. Now notice what's not listed here. The Sabbath days, the holy days, all these other things. And when you actually get into the, the fact that they're talking about um, this uh, sexual promiscuity, underneath these Noahide laws... You know what's allowed? Women to be homosexuals. It's only an edict or a, a judicial legislation against male homosexuality. To take it further, if you're not of Jewish lineage, here's what they say. I want to read this because this is actual Noahide doctrine that I printed up here. Let me read this. Gentiles, anybody in here Jewish? I'm not Jewish. I don't even know if I have any of the, of the tribes of Israel in my blood. I'm part Cherokee Indian, I know that. I'm Germanic. Scott, yeah, okay, I'm Scottish, so maybe there's some there. But I'm not a purebred, so to speak. I'm not. I would probably be considered a Gentile. In this thought 
or this philosophy of this bifurcation of expectations that runs completely contradictory um, to what God says. Here's, here's what Noahide law says. Gentiles may not be taught the Torah. They may not be taught the Torah. Hence, the Talmud permitted the, the teaching to a Gentile of the Torah, the inheritance of the congregation of Jacob. So they're, what they're saying is here, that the law that was codified, the Ten Commandments, was specifically and only meant for and intended for Jews. God contradicts, contradicts them in the Scriptures. A Gentile, this is actually from, the, from the, uh, the Talmud, a Gentile observing the Sabbath day deserves death by beheading. You see, we're on on the news every day watching this thing called this movement from ISIS in which they commit all these atrocities against humanity, behead people, and do these other things. You know, what the, you know what this is? You know what the Noahide law is? It is nothing more than a replacement for God's Ten Commandments. It is nothing more than, um, what's that law? The Islamic law, Sharia. This is the Jewish equivalent of Sharia law. Here's what's supposed to happen. This is what they say. Now, you get, on, you get online, you get online, and you read these things, and all these people are popping up saying, oh, I just saw a guillotine got put up in Georgia, or Ohio, there's guillotines being put up on Air Force bases. I'm not talking about conspiracy. I don't know about that. I'm not going to talk about that. That's mere conjecture. It's irresponsible to say that because I don't know that. But all I'm saying is there are people who have crept in. They have crept in. I know of them personally who are teaching Noahide doctrines and troubling people in the church of God. They do it. It says, the decree that will, the edict that will go forth, all Gentiles found keeping the seventh-day Sabbath shall be found guilty of breaking the Noahide law and must be punished to the fullest. Decapitation. You got some real wackos out there, brethren. We are faced with all these different ideologies, all these different mindsets, all these different things that people want to push on us, and we have people in our, that come into our culture that are endorsing this thing called Noahide Laws and telling people all you have to do for salvation is to copy the letters and read in the scriptures and that's all you need for salvation. We'll get to that here in just a second. We have all these different things that are coming on to the fact. But what did God say? What did God say about all this? When you look at the biblical legislation that we're faced with, it's, I think, when it's important. And we're talking about the letters in red, I think it's important that we actually examine what the letters in red say about these things, about these Noahide laws, about this bifurcation uh, of Jew and Gentile and the expectation. What is, let's go to Mark chapter 2 real quick. Mark chapter 2. Now this is going to be a set of scriptures of which I know you're all familiar with. If I can get there. Mark chapter 2. Here we go. In verse 23, it said, Now it happened as he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look what they do, what is not lawful on the Sabbath. Where does it say in the law that you can't walk through a field and do that? This is obviously oral tradition he's talking about here. Obviously, oral tradition, and that's what Noahide laws are based on, oral tradition. The Pharisees said to him, look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath day? 
But he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry and, and uh, those with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of uh, Ab- Abiathar, the high priest, and is not lawful to eat except for the priest, and also gave some to those who were with him. And he said, the Sabbath was made for the Jews. Is that what he said? Let's read it again. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of this. Now, there's a problem. There's a problem with Noahide laws. Number one, with the Noahide laws, when you go back to Genesis chapter 9 and you look at some of the things that they add on to the, this discourse or this monologue or this dialogue between God and Noah, oftentimes what they say, what they put in oral tradition, there is no thus saith the Lord attached to it. There is no direct edict from God about that, about some of the things that they teach. Anybody see anything in the scriptures that says a Gentile that keeps the Sabbath day needs to be beheaded by guillotine? Where's the thus saith the Lord? Where's the authority of a higher being? It's, it's, it's missing. It's not there. It's all oral tradition. And in addition to that, let's go over to something that people forget. Over to Romans chapter 11. I guess we have to back up and ask ourselves another question. We talk about the Decalogue or the law that was codified to Israel, which included the Sabbath day and everything else in the Ten Commandments. Where does God say that that is a covenant between he and the Jews? Where does it say that? Because when I read the scriptures, it says between me and Israel. There's a lot more tribes included in Israel other than the tribe of Judah. You get my point? You understand what I'm saying? It's not just for the Jews. He says, For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are, are, are my flesh and save some of them, I'm talking about the Jews, for if they're being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? But if the first, notice this, if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy and the root is holy, so are the branches. What's he saying here? That anybody that is associated with the root or the tree or Jesus Christ, so to speak, guess what they are? They are holy. He goes on to, conf- he goes on to talk even more. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, that's a very key component to this argument. You notice what he just said here? Let's read that again. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you... Who were the Romans? Were they they Jewish? The Roman church was Gentile. They weren't Jewish. Now, you might have had some some Jewish people scattered here and out there because of the diaspora and so on. And grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. Do not boast against the branches, but if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, uh, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you goodness, if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you will also be cut off. In verse 24 he says, For if you were cut off from the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature and cultivated the olive tree, how much more these who are natural branches be grafted in to their own... What's he saying here? What's the Apostle Paul saying here? Anybody? 
Exactly. So if you are a believing Gentile and you follow Jesus Christ and you accept Jesus Christ, then you are grafted into this thing called salvation and to spiritual Israel. So the lineage or the physical lineage doesn't matter much. What matters is the adherence to and the acceptance of salvation of the one who came up through the line of David. So no matter what kind of blood flows through these veins, there is no blood that is more superior to another. There is no color of skin that is superior to another. Because the last time I checked, correct me if I'm wrong, but don't we all go back to Adam and Eve anyway? Anybody know what color Adam and Eve were? The only recollection that I can come up with when I look at Adam and Eve is, is Adam means red clay. Now whether or not that was a tone of his skin, I don't know, it's mere conjecture. But the point is, the point is here, that he, what he's saying is, is he said, look, look at the natural branches. How because of their unbelief and their conduct, they were removed and cut off from the tree, but you're grafted in and you're going to stay in that tree as long as your conduct and your morals stay to the expectation of the one who called you. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense to me. What he's saying here is don't think that there's a separate set of expectations or there's any point of superiority because they were cut off and you were grafted in or because they're the natural branches and you're grafted in. There's no such thing as this thing called superiority because you're all under the same Lord and you're all under the same set of expectations. And yet we have this Noahide law, this heresy. This heresy. Brethren, this is a heresy. It takes it a little bit further that says that anybody pronouncing or professing the name of Christ, if you profess the name of Christ according to this Noahide law that's going around and floating around and people are starting to think it's a pretty good thing, if you believe and confess and profess the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you are deserving of decapitation. On the surface, it looks good. It sounds accepting. You know, at a man, a man sheds blood, I'll require that life at his hand, uh, set up just laws, you know, yada, yada, yada. And then you find out that really what it is, it is a means by which some people, some subculture, wants to maintain some, sup some superficial false sense of superiority because they're of Jewish lineage. Do you remember what Paul said about that? He said, I am a Jew of the Jews. I am a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I persecuted this way. But once I found out the truth, you know what he did? Remember what he, what he counted his lineage as? When he found salvation in Christ, what did he say? But I count that all as rubbish. Do you remember him saying that? It's amazing what people are trying to get the church of God culture to buy into. It is sickening to think that people would actually believe this. This is nothing more than a replacement of God's Ten Commandments. This is nothing more than an attempt to predate the Christian doctrine of duplicity. What does that mean? Well, in the Old Testament, they believe it was a, a gospel of law. In the New Testament, it was a gospel of grace. Law done away in the New Testament. Old Testament was all about law. So, now you have scholars now saying in Christianity that when Jesus Christ was crucified and resurrected, once he came in uh, Matthew 5.17. Let's turn over there, Matthew 5.17. runs a complete contradiction of what Christ said. He says, do, he start, it's wonderful how he starts this out because he starts out in a way that you would think that could not be, there could be no misconception about what he's talking about, right? He really starts it out, he predicates it very clearly what he means. 
He says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. Is there not clarity in that statement to us? Don't entertain the thought that I've come to destroy the law or the prophets. Predication, pretty straight to the point. We can understand it. Makes perfect sense. He didn't come to destroy anything. And we have problems with the next statement, they say. For I, uh, he says, I did not come to destroy the law or but assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle or title will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Do you know what the, the, the word to fulfill means in the Greek? That means to fulfill it or to restore it to its deepest intentions. He came to retake what was taken. You see, the, 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 the Pharisees of the day, they loved to live by the letter of the law. They loved to look for loopholes in the law. They loved to say, well, I wasn't really guilty because I didn't actually do it. Remember the, uh, the woman that was caught in adultery? You remember that story? They're ready to stone this woman. And Jesus came around and said, hmm, hold on, guys. Let me, let me show you a little something. Bends down, writes something in the sand. White Hendricks would tell you that he knows what, what it means, and I would concur with him. They referred to an Old Testament law. It said, by the fact of two or three witnesses, let a fact be established. Woman, where are thy accusers? Remember that? Now go and sin no more. Under this law, Noahide laws, you know how many witnesses it takes? One. Two or three for a Jew to be put to death, one for a Gentile. Do you see how this is coming to start to be some sort of a racial bias, this doctrine? What's good for me is not good for you. What's good for you is not good for me. This double standard that, that they have here. It's amazing how, how people look at this. As a matter of fact, we, we, we've come to a point in the Scriptures in Matthew chapter 5 where we talk about these beatitudes or the attitudes that we're supposed to take on. And then right after that, he comes on to the similitudes and he goes on to talk about um, lust, adultery, and divorce, uh, perjury, retaliation, love of enemies, all these kind of things. You know, I've actually heard people in the Church of God movement that have told me, right here in the Scriptures of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, if a man even now goes on to look upon a woman with lust in his heart, he has committed adultery already. A person approached me one time after talking about this scripture. He said, Tony, you know what I'm going to do? Well, since Jesus said that I've already committed it, I'm going to go ahead and do it. Because I'm already guilty. And I said, that's so wrong. That's so wrong on so many different levels. Well, how is it wrong? I said, because when you have the thought in your mind, that is between you and your creator, and you can correct that. But if you act it out, and you commit something against your partner, or you commit a sin against somebody else, you know what you've just given them? You've given them a burden. We are told that we are required to forgive people. And if we're committing sins against somebody else, a husband or a wife or whatever the case may be, and we think it's just going to be okay because we confess those, oh, you know, I messed up, I should have done that. You know what you've just done to your spouse? You have burdened them with the requirement to forgive you for what you've just done. And how do you know if that's not too much for them to bear? So there is a huge difference, a very big difference in thinking and doing. Because when you think about it, you correct it. When you do it, guess what? You have actually justified your thoughts and you're putting on somebody else something that they may not be able to bear. It is a big difference.
a huge difference from thought to deed. It really is. I'm going to skip through this here because I got 10 more minutes. The Noahide laws are a very big topic. They are heresies. They have no truth. I've even had people, one person said this. I remember seeing this on the news. This is probably, well, I'm probably going back 15 to 20 years now where they had this lesbian priest who stood up and she said, these are the words that Jesus spoke out against when it comes to homosexuality. And she did this. She said, he didn't say a word. So because Jesus didn't specifically say it in the Beatitudes or the Similitudes or the Gospels, it's okay. That's what people say. That's what they're saying. Justifying behaviors because he didn't say, you know what else has to happen for us to understand and to put into context and to understanding the red, the red letters? Because number one, a lot of times when Jesus was speaking, he was speaking to proselytes. The earliest converts of Christianity were Jewish proselytes. They understood the law. They were raised in it. There was no need to make distinctions. They knew that homosexuality was wrong. They knew blasphemy was wrong. They knew all these things were wrong, so there was no need to clarify that. Just amazes me how the words of Christ are so twisted. You know what else you have to ignore? To come to that conclusion, not only who he was speaking to, because that does set the audience as part of the context. Luke chapter 4. Here's what you have to set aside. And just for time's sake, verse 1. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. In those days he ate nothing, and afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. The devil would say to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones become bread. He was tempting him, but Jesus said to him, It is written... Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every letter in red. Is that what he said? Or does he say by every word of God? Who is Jesus? Is he not the God of the Old Testament? Is he not the one that gave the Decalogue to Moses? Is he not the one that said, you shall have no other gods before me? You shall remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? Is he also one that said, a man shall not lay with man like he does a woman? Is he not the same one? You have to completely and utterly either one be completely ignorant on who Jesus Christ is Or number two, not care. Because when I brought this up to somebody one time who was a Noahide law teacher, when I said, but you don't understand. You know, the letters in red, uh, they're, they're great to live by. I wish I could live by just one of the things that Jesus said and the Beatitudes and all the letters in red. I, we'd be doing pretty good to live that way, I would think. But I said, you're completely ignoring the fact that Jesus pre-existed, John chapter 1, the book of Hebrews, the book of Colossians, I, I just listened, and I'll clean it up for you. You know what the retort was? I'm trying to clean it up in my mind so I can say it. I don't want to hear that refuse. Wow. Wow. You have to take a lot of things out of the picture. Make a lot of assumptions. Make a lot of concessions, a lot of compromise to believe in this thing called Noahide laws. 
In the book of Revelation, it tells us that the patience of the saints, that they keep the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Are there two standards of living? I hope, brethren, I hope that as we continue our walk with Christ and the days grow shorter to his approach, to his coming back, I hope that we don't buy into these things called Noahide laws. And I hope that we don't buy into red-letter theology beyond what Christ had recorded for us. I hope we don't look for loopholes in the letters in red. I hope we don't point to arguments in silence to justify sinful behaviors. I hope we recognize the fact that there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile in God's eyes, that once we are reconciled through Christ, that we belong to him, and we are, in fact, spiritual Israel, and the exceptions and, and, and the expectations are no different. To say in print, unashamedly, that those Gentiles who, who keep the Sabbath day, the holy days, who read the, the, the Torah, the five first books of the Bible, are, are worthy of decapitation? This is what's coming in from behind right now? This is the big thing? Because they can settle it like it's something good? Brethren, if you see something like this coming your way, recognize it. Run from it. This is a replacement. This is contradictory to what God says. This is contradictory to Scripture. This is dangerous. This is dangerous. Understand it. Don't be scared about it. Just be, be, be aware that these Noahide laws are real and people are troubling certain people in our groups to keep the Noahide laws and not the Ten Commandments. You don't have to quit your job for the Sabbath day because you're, you know, I've heard all these different things. Just be aware and recognize that if we're going to adhere to a red-letter theology, there's nothing wrong with that because the words in red are beautiful. We have to maintain our connection to the one who not only spoke the words, but inspired them to be recorded for us. He is our Messiah. He is the God of the Old Testament. He's the one that has the same expectations for everybody, not, not one for Jews and one for Gentiles. There's no such thing as duplicity of the gospel. He is the eternal, he is the everlasting, he is our creator, and he knows and expects that those expectations are the same. You go back, finish reading Mark chapter 7, and the days in Jesus Christ, he was dealing with these very thing, same things. These Noahidic laws in which he said, all too well, you keep your own traditions, the doctrines of men, and you make void and of none effect the commandments of God. Recognize the Noahide laws. Take red-letter theology for what it's worth. Implement it in your lives. But remember, that's only a partial narrative. It's only a partial narrative. Jesus said, live by every word of God. So just be aware. These Noahide laws are dangerous.